If you would take your Bibles and turn with me once again to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're picking up where we left off last week. We're coming to the end of our series on the doctrine of the church. We've gone through many, many passages over the last eight weeks looking at the importance of corporate worship. I hope that that has been conveyed, that there is nothing more important that you and I do than to gather on the Lord's day in the Lord's house with the people of God to worship Him in spirit and in truth. That is the most important thing that you and I do. And we've looked at how important it is to not just gather for worship, but to be an active part of a Bible-believing church. And it's my intention, with the help of the Lord, we're going to finish strong this morning. We're going to finish strong, Lord willing. Um, the title of the message is The Proper Structure, Part 2. But there are a couple of questions that I want you to keep in your mind as we walk through this passage. And the questions, how and why? Ephesians chapter 4 I want to read to your hearing verses 7 through 16. Hear now the word of the true and living God. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith when he ascended upon high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God and unto a perfect man under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head even Christ from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Let us pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we have read and we have heard your word, not man's words, but yours. Father, we pray that in the time that we have remained that you would remove all distractions. God, any spirit that is not of you, let it be cast from this place. God, we pray that every heart and that every mind would be in tune with your spirit this day. That way we would give no thought to the rest of the day. Next week, we'll be here and now before your face. That you would give us eyes to see. That you would give us those ears to hear hearts to receive, but more than anything, Lord, give us wills to be obedient, people of the Most High God. All these things we ask and we do pray in Jesus' precious and holy and strong name. Amen. Last week I told you that we 
have a, our outline has four points, and we only made it through the first two. In point number one, verses one through three, we talked about the serene or the humble walk of the church. How the Apostle Paul said that he was the prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, not one begrudgingly, but one of delight. That it is indeed the greatest of all privileges to be a saved, born-again child of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of a conversation that I had with a, a former pastor of mine. He was the pastor who preached my maternal grandfather's funeral, a man by the name of Larry House. He, he and I were talking one time in his office. He said, Jared, it is a sweet, sweet thing to walk with Jesus Christ. And it is. It is. It is hard. It is hard at times, especially in this day where it's looked down upon, it's despised, but it is still ultimately a sweet, sweet thing to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. And because salvation is all of grace, it should derive within us a deep, deep spirit of humility, gentleness, and peace. In verses 4 through 6, we talked about the, the seven unities of the, of the church, that every Christian is united together across distance, languages, time, and eternity. We are all one body of Christ. We are united together by one spirit, one Lord, one hope, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father over all and through all who is in all. We are not one world, one with the world, all religions of the world are not united as one. The people of God are united as one body of Christ. Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 says, and this is going to come up more than once, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So that brings us up to date to our text this morning. And as I was preparing... Uh, those two more points grew into three. So we've got three points that we're going to work through this morning because I don't want us to skip over uh, anything and its in importance because I told you this, this passage is just so rich, so deep, so vast, and I don't want us to skip over anything. So look with me at verses 7 through 10 as we see the source of the church and her gifts. It is here in these verses where we will answer the question, how? Answer that question, how, in two ways. How did the church come about? How did the church get her gifts? This is a section that is quite timely, seeing as how we're only a few weeks away from Resurrection Sunday. By a show of hands, how many of you have ever wondered, what, did the Lord, what was the Lord Jesus doing for those three days and three nights that his body was in the tomb? Has anybody ever wondered that? Thank you for your honesty. Everybody else got it figured out, I guess, right? Christ's body was in that tomb from Friday to Sunday, and it did not move. However, his spirit was very much active. Look what it says in verse 7. It says, but unto every one of us is given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection resulted in a twofold giving on our behalf. First and foremost is the gift of eternal salvation. I talked about it last week. We could never talk about it enough. The precious gift that he gave us. If, if Christ never gives us another thing while we're on this earth, if he has saved our souls, he's given us all more than we could ever, ever deserve. The second 
is the gifts that Christ gives to the church. The individual gifts that he gives to serve him with and gifts that he gives to the church. We've talked very much about the individual gifts. In the next point, we'll talk about the gifts that he gives to the church when we consider the structure of the church. In verse 8, Paul is quoting Psalm Psalm 68, verse 18. Christ died and was resurrected and ascended upon the highest place. He ascended on high and he gave gifts to men. This is talking about the the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. You see that in verses like Matthew 28 and Acts 1, where the Lord Jesus gives the great commission to the apostles. He gives them to to, to the disciples and then he ascends back into heaven. In the New Testament, in those places, we see the ascension from an earthly perspective, but there is also a heavenly perspective of the ascension. Anybody have an idea where that's found? Here's a hint. It's not in the New Testament, but rather in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Listen to these words. It says, I kept looking in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and listen to this, and he came up. He came up to the Ancient of Days and came near before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So Christ rose from the dead, walked upon the earth for 40 more days, teaching the disciples the things that we re- that are uh, or revealed to us in the New Testament, particularly in the epistles, and then he ascended back into heaven victoriously. For he had accomplished the Father's will. It was all fulfilled. It was all done. Jesus was victorious. He purchased salvation, and he gave gifts to men. In verses 9 and 10, Paul explains what that means and how Jesus gave gifts. Before he ascended to the high, uh, back into heaven, he had to first descend. Christ descended from heaven, coming in the form of a man, born of a virgin in Bethlehem's cave. Christ made himself to be no reputation. Philippians 2, verse 7, he humbled himself. He condescended. He lowered himself as creator to become one of his creation. He descended to earth in that matter. Then secondly, he descended in his death. He died and descended to the heart of the earth. He descended to Sheol. Now listen. Christ did not go to hell and suffer for our sins. That is a stark heresy that many do preach. That did not happen. Christ did not go to hell and and was tormented for our sins. The suffering that the Lord Jesus endured was upon the cross. The Lord Jesus suffered an eternity's worth of punishment in the six hours in which he hung upon the cross. For on the cross, the Father poured out his unmitigated and unvarnished wrath upon his only begotten Son. For when he said it was finished, it was exactly that. It was finished, paid in full. When he died, he descended to the dead in Sheol, did not suffer, but rather proclaimed his victory. The Old Testament understanding of Sheol, there were two compartments. There was Hades, which was the place for the unrighteous dead, and uh, the demons who had been bound there because of their wicked cohabitation with women during the period of the flood. You can read about that in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. The other compartment was paradise, also known as Abraham's bosom. The place of happiness and bliss that where the Old Testament saints would go, the ones who died looking forward 
to the coming of Messiah where we look by faith to the finished work of Messiah. They could not go to heaven until Christ purchased their redemption on the cross, but they were not being punished in hell. You see this in the Lord Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Christ descended into the heart of the earth, into Sheol, to make proclamation to the spirits in prison. Christ did not preach the gospel, but rather announced his victory over the demons. Like the victorious kings of old, he recaptured the captives, those that were in paradise, and liberated them, and henceforth they would live in heaven as eternally free sons of God. So this shows us, verses 7, 8, 7, 8 9, and, and 10 shows us that uh, the cost, the cost that Christ went through to give us salvation and to give us the gifts that he, that we have to serve him with. Christ suffered upon the cross, died and descended to the heart of the earth, was gloriously resurrected, led captivity captive, and he ascended upon high and gave gifts to men. Christ died and was buried and raised to give you and I eternal life. Christ died and was buried and raised to give you and I gifts to serve him with. Point number two. We see the structure. Verse 11. And it says, and he gave some apostles, some prophets, and some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers. This is the fivefold ministry, the fivefold structure of the church. How did the church come about? By the incarnation, sinless life, death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ purchased the church. Salvation is by Christ alone, by Christ and Christ alone. And by Christ's work, one is translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, which is the church. But it is also in Christ where we get the structure of the church because he gave gifts to the to the individuals and to the church. We talked for a couple of weeks, several weeks about the individual gifts. But here I want us to consider the gifts that Christ gives to the church, the offices, the, 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 the structure that we see. See the fivefold ministry, the apostle, the prophet. Evangelist, pastor, and teacher. We talked about the apostle and prophet. Those offices in the new, in the early church form are no longer active. The apostles, you study their lives, you study the New Testament, they were handpicked by Christ. There were certain things that each one of them had in common that no one living today could possibly fulfill. No one living today walked with Christ while he was upon the earth in his earthly ministry. And we do not find instructions for how to install an apostle or a prophet in a local church. The prophecy that comes forward now is not as far as telling what uh, is uh, words directly from God, but rather from his word, because we have the completed revealed word of God, the Bible. But the pastor and the evangelist are still active and the teacher. So let's think about those three offices. First, the evangelist. The evangelist is the men that proclaim the good news. Their sole purpose is to proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. Preach the gospel. The good news of salvation in Jesus Christ to those that have not yet believed. He is a proclaimer of of salvation by grace through faith in the Son of God. And this can be done by preaching from the pulpit, preaching in the open air in the streets, handing out gospel tracts, or even in one-on-one conversation. The gift of the, 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 uh, the evangelist. Paul told Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Preach the gospel. Cast that seed to, uh, so that people would hear and be converted. Teachers. Teachers. 
Teachers don't have to be able to preach. Preachers do have to be able to teach. Teachers are able to take uh, the, the word of God and explain it, to instruct and ground people in the truths of the Bible. And then there's the pastor. Focus on it. Pastor, shepherd, elder, bishop, overseer are all names for the same office. A pastor is a shepherd, is appointed as an overseer of the body of Christ over the church to guard and to shepherd, to tend it, to feed it, to guide it. We see the qualifications for the pastor in 1 Timothy chapter 3. I want to read that to you in the first seven verses. 1 Timothy chapter 3 said, This is a true saying, if a man... Desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man uh, know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach into the snares of the devil. The man must be above reproach. The God-called man must be above reproach. He must be the husband of one wife. And you compare that with verses 4 and 5 of 1 Timothy 3, is the family life of the pastor is more important than where he went to seminary. Seminary is important and should be uh, uh, trained to do the work of the ministry. But the family life is important in the God-called man. He must be hospitable, not a drunk, not short-tempered to the point where he starts physical fights. Not greedy, not new to the faith, and must have a good rapport with unbelievers. That doesn't mean that the world speaks necessarily well of him because the Bible tells us that friendship with the world is enmity with God. But he must have a good testimony. Must have a good testimony before the lost. With the lost look at the person and say, there's something different about him and there are two extremely dangerous threats to the church today there are two dangerous threats to the church today the first is unqualified men in the role of the pastor unqualified men are dangerous because they do not preach the truth of the word of god they do not preach the whole counsel of god they would rather preach an ear-tickling message that yields the approval of other men and lines their pockets rather than preach a message that seeks the approval of God. They are the agent of the devil proclaiming false messages that are seducing and damning. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 says, For the time will come they will not endure sound doctrine. That time was then and it's carried to now. There are now times people will not listen to the truth. They don't want to hear it. They suppress it. They push it down. They don't want to hear the truth of the word of God. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths to fables that is timely that's now 
in a day where truth is suppressed and lies are glorified. When someone proclaims the truth now, the culture seeks to silence them, to count, to cancel them, to destroy them. But when someone proclaims a lie, they're called heroes. And these unqualified men either align themselves with the culture or they will not take a hard biblical stance. They'll even downplay or even make excuse for what the Word of God says. And these unqualified men are easy to find because sadly, they usually get large platforms where a lot of eyes and a lot of ears can see and hear their seducing lies. So they are the first great threat to the church that the devil uses. There's another one. There's another one. And this one's, this one's kind of tough, but it's truth nonetheless. The second great danger that plagues the church that has had devastating effects, and we see them now, are women preachers. I want to front load this, okay, by saying that Christianity does not degrade women. Not in any manner. You look at Jesus' numerous encounters with women in in the New Testament. He dealt with them with grace and with love. You take the woman that was caught in adultery. If there was anyone who had the right and the power to stone that woman to death, it was Christ. He had the power and the authority to stone her to death and the men that brought her to, brought, uh, her to him. But yet he saves her from death and he shows her grace by telling her that he did not condemn her and he did not condone her sin, but rather showed her grace and told her, go and sin no more. Christ loves the women in the body the same as he does the men. Remember the verse from Galatians 3, there is neither male nor female for we are one in Christ. That doesn't mean that there is no such thing as gender. Is what the world tries to tell us. It means that the grace of God in salvation is the same towards women as it is men. Now, God does love the men and women of his church the exact same. But however, he has designed different roles for us. And God does not call women to preach. He doesn't. And you see this over and over in the scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Verse 33 says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. As in all the churches of the saints. The apostle Paul is dealing with there in in that section prior to that with speaking in tongues. No one was to do that. You had multiple people speaking in tongues during those early church worship services without an interpreter there, and it was confusing. And so so God, through the Apostle Paul, says He is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Not just localized to that church there at Corinth, but in all the churches of the saints. And then verse 34, we read these words, let your women keep silent in the churches. For it is not per- permitted for the, unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. Does that mean that women can't sing? No. Does that mean when we have responsive readings that women are to be quiet? No. 
It means that a woman is not to stand in an authoritative role of a pastor or teacher over men. It's explained in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. Paul writes, he says, In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. That is something that is so lost on this culture now. And we're getting ready to get into summertime where the weather is warm. And when you go to town and if you try to walk with the Lord, you end up having to do this most of the time. Can't look over there, right? That's not what God wants from his people, especially that's not what Christ wants from his daughters, And people, ladies that profess to be Christian, that profess to be Christ-like, will dress in manners just like the world. But the world tells us adorn themselves in modest apparel. With shamefacedness, that means self-restraint. And sobriety, with not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness. And then verse 11. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over a man. I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over men. I've had many discussions with people who try to say that God can call women to preach. Like, how do you get around that? Where it's it's a matter of interpretation. How do you interpret that? It's plain. It's English. God does not call or permit women to preach or pastor. But he does command women to teach. What are they supposed to teach? Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 and following. The age of the older women, likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, that's gossips, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women. Teach them what? To be sober to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their husbands and to the word of God, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Yes, the husband is to be the spiritual leader of the family and the wife is to submit, but she does so as the husband submits to Christ. If the husband is derelict in his duties or if the husband is leading the family away from Christ, the wife must obey Christ and not the man. And where does the desire come from? Where does that desire come from to usurp that authority? It goes all the way back to the fall. Genesis 3 verse 16 says, To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in conception. In pain you will bear children, and your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. That's not talking about the sexual desire or attraction that is in marriage. That type of attraction is a good thing. God told them before the curse, be fruitful and multiply. The godly desire for one another in marriage leads to children. But the other type of desire, a desire to usurp the godly line of authority, that godly line of authority that God has established It does not bring blessing. It brings conflict because it is a curse. And that desire carries forward, carries up out of the home, into the culture, and into the church. Women desiring the office of pastor is a result of the curse. And we see it. We just read it over and over in the Scripture. God does not permit a woman to preach or pastor. And this is not just a New Testament 
uh, a New Testament development. And it's surely not something that the Apostle Paul just contrived on his own because he supposedly hated women. He did not hate women. He was very zealous for the proper order and structure of the church. And we can look through all of Scripture. We can look at the Old Testament and see that the Levite priests, all men. There was never a female high priest. Deborah was a judge in Judges 4 in the absence of a man. The Lord used Deborah to bring about his will on one occasion, but when it came to going to war with the enemies, she was not about to lead the troops, and so she chose a man, Barak, to lead the troops. And some will use Deborah as an example to justify women preachers. She was used as a judge to the shame of the men because the men would not serve. It was to the shame of the men that Deborah was used in that role, but it was not a role regarding worship. She had no priestly duties. And so the same dangers go for women that serve as pastors as those that are um, pastored by unqualified men. The congregations that they oversee will ultimately suffer. The congregations that they oversee will ultimately suffer. They are both disregarding the authority of Scripture. They put their feelings above what the Bible says. Folks, I've said it many times. Our feelings never trump the Bible. Our feelings can betray us. Our feelings can lead us astray. Our feelings must be based on the Word of God, which means you and I need to read the Word of God a lot. If some will say something like this, well, I know what the Bible says, but the Holy Spirit told me that I'm supposed to do this, or I'm supposed to uh, do that, or I'm supposed to be this. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. It will not, will not lead a person to do anything that is contrary to what we read in the Bible. If a person disregards the authority of Scripture in one area, they will do the same thing in other areas as well. Women and unqualified men who disregard the clear teachings of Scripture that they should not be a pastor, that they're not qualified to be a pastor, also disregard what the Lord says on other issues as well, such as homosexuality, such as the true biblical definition of marriage, such as abortion and others. I have never, never known of a woman that wrongly stood in the pulpit that, or wrongly held the position of power, of, of the position of pastor that did not affirm homosexuality, homosexual marriage, and affirm abortion. They all go hand in hand in hand. And you see this. You see the devastation where this has taken place in denominations such as the United Methodist Church, the Episcopal Church, the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America, the Lutheran Church, and now even into the SBC. There are women who have been darlings of the SBC that began their careers writing devotional books. Then they started preaching. And then before you knew it, they began backpedaling on their past stance for biblical marriage. They began apologizing for standing for true biblical marriage in the past. If they disregard what the Word says in one area, they will do it in other areas as well. And there must be certain fundamental tenets of the Christian faith. There, there are certain fundamental tenets of the Christian faith that we must affirm. In order to be a true Bible-believing Christian, we must affirm certain truths. The triune nature of God, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the substitutionary atonement, and the inerrancy of Scripture. 
that the Bible is indeed our sole infallible rule of faith and practice. We aren't governed by any other documents. We aren't concerned with non-canonical books. We aren't concerned with the Apocrypha. We aren't concerned with Gnostic Gospels. We aren't concerned with the Book of Discipline. The Bible is our sole, infallible, final authority of rule and practice for the church, for the born-again child of God. And if a person is wrong on any of those major things, then other things will be off as well. And if they are in a place of authority, they will cause others to be in error as well. And that is very, very dangerous. And you see it. You see it in our day where men and women who are decked out in pastoral robes and they were with sashes with the hijacked rainbow colors proclaiming a false message of all-encompassing and all-accepting love. The damage that false teaching has bought has brought about has been great. One of the things that it's brought about is it has yielded a soft, limp-wristed, effeminate, weak, and unbiblical form of Christianity. One that has no spine. One that will not contend for the truths of the faith because it's grounded in error. One that swaps truth for lies. And I heard this recently, and it's true. One of the biggest reasons why men don't want to come to church is because modern evangelicalism emasculates them. The ones, the, the, the big churches that make all the noise, that garner all the attention, they emasculate men. God created men to, in His image to build, to lead, and if necessary, defend. Yet the feministic culture has infiltrated the church and say that men and women need to switch roles. And I often say this, and I don't say this with pride, but if a person says that they have a woman as their pastor, they don't have a pastor. God does not permit women to preach or even serve as deacon. If the men won't step up and serve in those capacities, then that church just doesn't have people in those offices, and therefore, that church will die. When the men stop serving, the churches die. The local churches die. It does not give a woman the right to supposedly step up and serve in a role that God has clearly established only to be filled by qualified men. Now, that's not politically correct. But it's the truth. It's the truth that God loves men and women in Christ equally. But it's also true that he's assigned us different roles and responsibilities, and that's not a bad thing. There is beauty in both. Point number three, the scheme of the church. Verses 16 through, verses 12 through 16. The scheme or the purpose of the church. Now we come to the why portion of the message. I told you to keep the words how and why in the, the, the back of your mind while, while we went through this text. We talked about how the church came about, how we, we get the, the gifts that he has given us. Now we see the why. Why did God establish the church the way that he did? Why did God give gifts to us? Why did God establish the pastoral offices in the church? Why does God command for us to be part and active of a, a Bible-believing church? Why does God not want us to forsake the assembling together of ourselves as the manner of some? Why? Here's the answer. So that we will become more like Christ. The answer is in verse 13. For the perfecting of, of till we come into the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man under the measure of the stature of the fullness 
of Christ. The purpose of the, of, of the pastoral offices is verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body. Christ gave gifts and structured the church in the way that he did to equip the saints to serve. I'm here to equip you to serve one another in the calling that he has placed upon you using the gifts that he has given you. And the, and the result that is intended is verse 13. That is the ultimate goal. That is the ultimate goal of the church to serve as one, to be united in the faith, and to be mature in the faith. It was said last week in Sunday school, we never graduate from learning how to properly walk with the Lord. But we are also not to stay in preschool. We are also not to stay in kindergarten. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 says, Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. God desires from you and I a deep, deep relationship with us and wants us to be shaped and molded into Christ-like maturity. Verse 14. Verse 14 is really the reason why I wanted to put this, this, this whole series of messages together. This verse 14 was the catalyst of it all. Listen to this. That hint that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight or, or uh, deceit of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. God desires for us to, to mature in our faith, to, to be more and more like Christ, to be grounded in biblical truth. This is so vital today as well. Here's why. You think back to the year 2020 during the, when the shutdown and the lockdowns were in place and everybody was locked in their homes unless you were deemed as an essential worker. You couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't do anything. Some people watched the news 24-7. Some people worked on projects around the house. And then some people got on the Internet. They got on social media, they got on YouTube, they got on other platforms like Rumble, and they watched hours upon hours upon hours upon hours of videos and went down every rabbit hole that there is, rabbit hole after rabbit hole, chasing every manner of conspiracy theory under heaven. And people became overly familiar with terms like QAnon and the Illuminati and Freemasons and many others. And people began studying everything in the media and scrutinizing it and looking at the culture for symbols that pointed to whether or not people in the public eye worshiped the devil. It was pointed out that cele the celebrities would do things like hold up a, a triangle or a diamond shape or cover up one eye. That was a symbol that they worshiped the devil. Conspiracy theories became conspiracy facts in many people's minds. Everything that we have ever been taught as a society is now questioned. That part isn't bad. That part isn't bad. We should question everything and we should filter it through the lens of Scripture. We've learned that much. But people would hold fast to one position and defend it with everything that they had until the next video came, until the next video came out. And then they would believe an entirely new perspective. That is what happens to the culture outside of crisis, complete instability. And that is the life of the immature, gullible, Lone Ranger Christian. They do not have a proper God-prescribed root structure, and therefore they believe everything, and I mean everything that comes down the spiritual pipe. If it sounds good, 
They believe it and they hold on to it. They'll believe this one week and then there, that's not good no more. I believe this. I'm going to listen to this preacher. Well, he, he's no good. So and none of it's scripturally based and they're tossed about to and fro like a piece of clothing in a dryer. They do not know what they believe or why they believe it. They do not believe one thing long enough to develop any lasting convictions. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 9 says, Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. The concerning part is that those philosophies based in conspiracy have now begun to blend into, in with Christianity in the minds of and hearts of many people. You can't do that. You cannot serve two masters. You will hate one and love the other. You must be out and out all in all with Christ. And if what you believe is not backed up with Scripture, then you need to change what you believe. Now, could there be some merit to all those conspiracies? Could there be a worldwide pedophile ring? Absolutely. Could there be a secret underbelly of actors and athletes and politicians that worship Satan and indulge and engage in cult-like rituals? Sure. Do I have proof? No. No, I do not. But I serve the Lord who says that there is nothing that nothing hidden that will not be revealed, nothing done in darkness that will not be brought to light. What is whispered in the closets will be shouted from the housetops. The Lord will, will expose all evil and bring it, to, bring it to justice. And if he doesn't do it in this life, he definitely will at the judgment. And I know this because it is the truth that is contained in the word of God. Not a YouTube video. The immature believer is gullible and subject to fall to the schemes of the devil. And that's what Paul is saying in verse uh, 14. The devil who sends false teachers that are under his influence appear as Christians and use trickery and cunning tactics to lie and deceive. You could say that one of the benefits that God has installed in being part and being an active part of a true Bible-believing church is that if as you do that, you are being protected. There are a lot of false teachers, false apostles, false pastors everywhere. But the church that has the deep knowledge of the Son of God and not a superficial one, one that knows the Word, that knows the Word for themselves, and has come to the unity of faith that is the characteristic of a mature man and comes to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, that church is mature enough to be protected. Like John, like the Apostle John said in 1 John, he says, we have overcome the evil one. You are strong. You've overcome the evil one. How did we get strong? He said, you're a spiritual, you're a spiritual young man. In other words, you started out as a spiritual babe. You were taught, you got tossed around. You grew and became a spiritual young man and you overcame the evil one. I would like to think that it would be very difficult for somebody to come in here and seduce us away with false teaching. And there are men trying every possible trick, every trickery, the trickery of men referring to Satan, because the New Testament talks about the schemes of the devil. We see that in the culture. We see that in the culture to seduce people away with lies, posing them as truth. Throw a little fun in there. Fun, fun has a place in all things. It really is. It, it, we, we, we enjoy coming to church. I look forward to it. It's fun to come in here and the fellowship and to carry on at times. 
But the games and the things that are played in other places that, that call themselves churches, when it gets hard, when times do get hard, whether it's because of persecution or whether it's because you got personal things going on in your life, when times get hard, you are not going to lean on who dressed up like a cartoon character. You are not going to lean on pajama day at church. You're going to lean on the truths, the principles of the word of God. Those are the things that hold us fast. There's a popular song, he, uh, he will hold me fast. For my uh, Jesus loves me so, he will hold me fast. How does he hold us fast? By the word of the living God holds it. He holds us fast. So when we read it and read it and read it, then when it times come to put it to use, when the, when, when the waves are crashing, we're like, how am I gonna, how am I gonna get through this? Then a place passage like Psalm 121 comes into your, comes into your mind, comes into your spirit by the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. I know where my help comes from. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not suffer your foot to be moved. For he that looks after you, he, he that, uh, the, uh, he that watches Israel, he never slumbers and he never sleeps. He will not suffer your foot to be moved. It is the truth of the word of God. How do you protect yourself from the trickery of men and the schemes of men? You have to be grown up. You can't be a child. The biggest tool, the biggest, the, the, the biggest tool, the biggest source of help that a believer has to not stay a child in the faith is to be an active member of a true Bible-believing church under the leadership and authority of a true biblically qualified pastor to serve and be served by their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage, edify, and love one another. Love one another to help them in their time of need. Cry with them. Celebrate with them. And love them with a deep Christ-like love to what it says in verse 15. But speaking the truth in love. Love them with a Christ-like love to, if, if and when it is necessary. Speak the truth to them, but do so in love. These are the reasons why Christ structured the church the way that he did. In order for each individual to be discipled into the faith, to be built up and to be mature in the faith so that they hold fast to the truth and become more and more and more and more and more like Christ. One cannot properly be discipled unless they're obedient. I heard this, I heard something yesterday profound, and it was from a woman. She was not a pastor, she was sharing her testimony. God does not measure success the way the culture does. He doesn't. God does not measure success the way the culture does. He measures success by obedience. Part of being obedient is to be active members of a Bible-believing local church. That's what God commands us. I thank God that he's placed me here. But I challenge you, what is it that he's placed upon your heart? How is it that he wants you to serve him? To serve him in here, serving one another that would serve the community as well.
Let's pray. God, our Father, we're truly grateful and thankful for your word. We're thankful for the truths that we read in it. Truths that are difficult, but we don't change truth. Truth changes us. So God, we pray. Help us, Lord, to be people, to be children of the Most High God that are continuously being fashioned and molded and shaped into the image of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for a church that seeks to do that. Help us, Lord, to seek deeper, to love you more, to want to love you deeper and have a deeper fellowship with you. Help us, Lord, to as the churches around the world that do serve you under persecution, help us, Lord, to serve you here when we're not. Help us, Lord, to use the gifts that you've given us, to help us find out what they are and to put them to use, serving one another, to build one another up, to equip one another, to be more like Jesus. All these things we ask and pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.